Well, I just uh, want to reiterate what Sam said. Please excuse us for a little bit of the mess in here, but we're so thankful for what the Lord is doing, not just on the outside and inside of the building, but what he's doing in our hearts here as a church. And if you're visiting, let me also join Sam in welcoming you, and we'd love to be able to chat with you have time after the service. Uh, you want to grab your Bible and turn, uh, actually turn to Matthew, and then keep your finger there and turn to Mark and Luke. John. So we are going to look just at the beginning of each of those Gospels, and I did not plan this. There are plenty of brothers that I know who plan out a whole year of preaching. So they have their preaching calendar, know exactly where they start and where they end. I am certainly not at that point quite yet, but uh, in the Lord's providence, he he actually has us celebrating Christmas with the Annunciation of Jesus' birth. And so, did I plan that? I did not, but I'm excited that we get to do that. Today, we are looking at Luke chapter 1 as we continue our exposition in Luke. But the reason I wanted you to open up to Matthew is because I want you to see how each of the Gospels begins. When we think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those the synoptics. But as we look at Matthew, Mark, and John, they open up very interestingly Matthew launches right into these words in Matthew 1.1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew, right from the get-go, tells us that there is a Savior, the Messiah, the King, and true Israel. And then flip on over to Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 as well, Mark launches right into it and says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no genealogy, no birth announcement. He just launches right into the start of Jesus' ministry. Flip on over to John chapter 1, and you know John, his prologue very well. He kicks off his gospel by taking us to eternity past and showing us Jesus' divinity. So there in John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what's different about Luke's gospel? Luke's gospel is different in that he doesn't mention Jesus or the Messiah or a genealogy right from the get-go. We don't even hear the name Jesus until verse 31 of chapter 1, when, the, when uh, Gabriel makes the announcement to Mary. And it's not until 2.11 that Luke calls him the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so the question that you ask is, well, what, what's taking Luke so long to get to this great news about Jesus, the Messiah? Is it just that he is long-winded and that's not the case, obviously. Every gospel writer has a specific purpose and a specific audience to whom they wrote. And Luke, again, more than all the other gospel writers, is trying to give us as comprehensive as possible the narrative of Jesus's birth and life and ministry. And so what he does is he begins, remember, to help Theophilus understand the significance of the Old Testament, and he begins to connect the dots for most excellent Theophilus. And he wants to begin with reminding Theophilus that this is not just a new story, but this is actually an old story. 
And this is what the Old Testament ended on. The Old Testament ended with a promise. And we talked about that promise last week from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Remember, the last written Old Testament prophet ends his prophecy as he begins to talk about a messenger. Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. And so it's the messenger who is going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. This is the last Old Testament promise, the last Old Testament prophecy that a forerunner would come. And that is why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though all of them don't talk about the birth and the infancy narratives, they all begin with John the Baptist. And so what Luke does here is he's providing for us the credible credentials. There is no Messiah without the forerunner. And here he is, John. John was sovereignly chosen to be the first to bear witness to Christ. And that's what we spent our time last week was looking at John's parents, this sweet and godly couple, but a childless couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah, you remember, he's a humble priest. He and his wife are faithful to the Lord. The Bible describes them as righteous and and blameless, doing the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And he was off to do his priestly duty. So the way that that worked was they would go down to Jerusalem uh, two weeks of the year. But this time it was different. This time the lot was cast and it fell to Zechariah. And for the first time in his lifetime, and the only time in his lifetime, he has the opportunity to go into the holy place and offer up the offer, the altar of incense. This was the highest privilege for any priest. And it was there that an angel appears to him, the angel Gabriel. And remember, there are no prophets. There are no angels, no miracles for 400 years. And so the significance of this moment as Gabriel comes with the message that God is going to perform and provide a miraculous birth, only to be outdone by an even more miraculous birth when Mary becomes pregnant. But all of this is just set up because it's signaling that the Messiah is on his way. The long-awaited for, longed-hoped-for Messiah is about to step on center stage. But before we get to him, we have to look at John the Baptist. So would you please look at chapter 1, verse 13, as I read. Here's God's word for us. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. 
and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Would you please pray with me one more time as we go to God's word? Father, we are thankful for another opportunity to open up your word. We recognize that apart from your spirit's help and guidance and wisdom, that these words will fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. So would you please do that work in our minds, in our hearts, and prepare us for the truth you have this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our main idea. And it's real simple. As we look at these two verses, Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Luke is going to provide us with the evidence and the explanation of John's greatness. This passage will provide us with the evidence and explanation of John's greatness. And so our outline is focused on John and what really makes John significant in the life and ministry of redemptive history is first, John's purity. As we see that he is not given over to drinking wine or strong drink. And then we'll look at John's power. As the scripture says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Then John's prophetic ministry as he is commissioned to preach and to turn many to the Lord. Then we'll look at John's prototype as he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Then John's priestly ministry as he's turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And then John, finally, his preparatory ministry as he is making ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, let's think about this. Greatness, what is it? There are lots of people who strive after greatness, lots of people who call themselves great. But it's one thing to be great in your mind. It's another thing to be great in the sight of the Lord. That is true greatness, to be great in the sight of the Lord. That is the heavenly standard of greatness. And as we look here at John, he's described as one who the Lord views as great. I'm sure if you ask the average person, someone who's not studying Luke chapter 1 with us, you ask them who's the greatest person ever to live, and I imagine not very many people will start with John the Baptist. I don't think that I would probably say John the Baptist, but these are the words that come out of Jesus' own mouth. You remember in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. And it seems silly to question Jesus, but is that true? I mean, greater than Job, who we studied a few months ago? Greater than Abraham, the patriarchs? Greater than Moses? Greater than Joshua? David? Daniel? When you begin to look at their lives, who lived a lot longer than John did, and you look at their faithfulness and their miracles and the things that they did, Jesus says here, yes, no one greater than John. Now, obviously, we know six months later that there was someone who was greater, born of a woman. But up to this point, no one greater than John the Baptist. And again, the question is, well, what made this man so great. Because if the media got a hold of John and evaluated his life, they'd say, well, he wasn't rich. He wasn't famous. 
he didn't have any great intellectual abilities, at least that we're aware of. He never held a high office in government. He never performed one single miracle. If John were around today, he wouldn't be popular. He didn't have a sense of fashion. He didn't have a large following. He wasn't a stud athlete. He wasn't a great chef. We know that as we observe his diet. He didn't build anything. He didn't buy anything. He didn't write anything. And his ministry only lasted a few months. He was alone in the desert. He was hated by those in authority. He was thrown into prison. He had his head chopped off as a party favor. And then top all that off, there were only a few people who showed up to his funeral. And in the world's eyes, this guy is not great at all. And yet, the creator of the universe says that this was the greatest man ever to live. And the question we want to ask is, how is that possible? Well, Tom Schreiner, Schreiner is very helpful here. He says this, he says, The greatness should not be understood ontologically, but functionally. You see, John has the unique privilege of being the messenger who introduces to Israel the Messiah, end quote. See, in other words, John the Baptist wasn't chosen to introduce Jesus because he was a great man. No, he was a great man because he was chosen to introduce Jesus to the world. His greatness was due to his role in redemptive history is he has the privilege to roll out the red carpet and point everyone to the Messiah. And so while John's greatness was not inherent, he did exemplify the kind of character that I think you and I should strive for as we pursue a life that represents the Lord well. So let's take a look at our outline, and it begins with John's purity there in verse 15. John 5, or sorry, Luke 1.15 says this, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. I just think it's very instructive that right after it was said that he would be great in the sight of the Lord, the next thing it says is he does not drink wine or liquor. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Greatness and getting drunk, they, they don't go together. Now, there's some debate over whether or not John was a Nazarite. You guys remember back in number six, there is uh, the law of the Nazarite. And just as a reminder, there were three distinct things that made a Nazarite a Nazarite. The first was abstaining from wine and strong drink, which we see here. But there were some other things like not cutting your hair and avoiding contact with the dead. But scripture says nothing of John being a Nazarite. And so I think it's safer to say that John was Nazarite-like. His abstinence uh, from wine seems to be more in line what we read in Leviticus chapter 10, where we read this in verse 9. It says, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And I think maybe some helpful context for this is to go back to the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, you remember, there was another mother, or there was another lady who was barren. She wanted to be a mother, but she had not had a child. And so she made a vow 
before the Lord, and she asked for a son. And she promised that if the Lord had blessed her with a child, that she would ensure that her son would be set apart in a very similar way. Now, the significance about the contrast that's made there in 1 Samuel is Eli, who was a priest, had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Samuel was dramatically different from these two men. You say, well, what's the deal with Hophni and Phinehas? Well, those guys were given over to indulgence. The Bible describes them as wicked, worthless, and vile men. And these are priests. Their God was their appetite, as Paul describes in Philippians. But the Bible says they disregarded the Lord's word. They slept around with women. They took advantage of God's people. These are the kind of men who had no regard for God and no self-restraint. But what we find here about John is that he's completely different. He's not going to live a life all about pleasing the senses, but satisfying the soul. His fleshly appetites were put in check, and everything that he would desire was subservient subservient to his spiritual calling of being the forerunner for the Lord. You see, clearly what God wanted for John was to be distinct distinct from the political world, distinct from the social world, distinct even from the religious world of his day. And his life was characterized by discipline, self-control, and sacrifice. Uh, We we don't want to be legalistic here, uh, believe that wine could be a blessing from the Lord. But here, John is set apart for a specific purpose And you say, well, that doesn't sound too exciting. I mean, what a boring life. He's an aesthetic guy living in uh, the the wilderness. But let me just say this. What could be more thrilling than being filled with the Holy Spirit, having an opportunity to walk closely with the creator of the universe and represent him for the entirety of your life? I often think that sometimes we come across passages of Scripture and they seem like downers, like Ephesians 5.18. says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And some people I've even heard, it just seems so limiting, it seems so legalistic, and we need to be reminded that every command that God gives is for our good. Every command that God gives is actually intended to maximize our joy, not minimize our joy. And so here we learn that he's to be filled with the Spirit. He's to be controlled by the Spirit. He's to be controlled by what is true and just and noble. He's to be overflowing with love and affection for God and for others. Here's the truth is you can't do much for the Lord if you're prone to give in to fleshly desires. And our culture, their message, their motto is for you to be consumed with your own pleasure to satisfy yourself, to do it here, to do it now, and to do whatever it takes to make yourself happy. But we need to be reminded of the Apostle Paul who says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I discipline my body and make it my what? My slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified. But I also want us to recognize this, that greatness in the sight of the Lord, it can't be reduced to just abstinence. I think there are a lot of folks who think that if I just stay away from the bad stuff, then I'm all good. But avoidance is not enough. 
See, this was not John's chief credential. It's actually the next stated attribute that we see here in the text that reveals what was going on internally within his spirit. That's the reality that made him a great man. And it says there that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He just didn't refrain from controlling substances. He was consumed and he was consecrated by the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to our next point, John's power. Where did John get his power from? He was filled with the Holy Spirit while the text says he was in his mother's womb. John had a supernatural source. He he relied on this source for all of his spiritual power. And just as a reminder, Luke, more than all the other writers, focuses in on the Holy Spirit and mentions the Holy Spirit more than the others. And this is the first time that he mentions the Holy Spirit. Now, there are other places in Scripture where people are mentioned to be set apart in the mother's womb. There's Samson back in Judges 13. You're familiar with that passage in Jeremiah 1.5. A lot of us quote this. Before I formed you in your innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, it says, I set you apart and I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Even the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.15, we read this, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. And so people were set apart in the scriptures. But what's unique to John is this, Nowhere else is anyone ever said to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Think about that. John's ministry literally started as a fetus, which to all those out there who talk about that's not a human being, that's a lie. The Bible is very clear. But this also means that even from conception, that he's under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. It's true that as John gets older, the Spirit will empower him, that the Spirit will equip him to point others to Christ. And he does that when he steps on the scene 30 years later. But the first person that he points to Jesus is his mom in his mother's womb. You guys remember the scene where Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and the baby jumps in the womb so as to say, Mom, there he is. There's the Messiah. And so he gives, he's given the awesome privilege of pointing his mom to the Messiah. It's also worth noting that John was filled with the Holy Spirit, but both his mother and father were also filled with with the Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty of what we see here in Luke, that this whole family is controlled by the power of heaven and they're serving in a way that is not possible apart from the aid of the Spirit of God. And I think it's just a reminder to us as we look at this section that you and I, we need help from the Holy Spirit. I asked my son Judah to pray for me and I asked him specifically, Judah, would you please pray that daddy would be depending on the Spirit as I go up there and preach? We recognize that without the Spirit of God, we cannot be impactful for the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of that verse in Psalm 127.1 that says this, unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in what? In vain. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. And maybe even more popular, what Jesus says in John 15.5, I am the vine, 
You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And then this, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So what made John great was certainly his purity, his power, but also in verse 16, his prophetic ministry. Look there at verse 16. It says, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Again, you just ask the average person what makes someone great, I doubt that they're going to say, well, they're great because they convict me of sin, they help me to repent, and they grow my love for God. Now, that's what people probably should say, but my guess is you won't hear that often. You see, greatness truly is, in our culture, you think about Muhammad Ali, who's great, even Herod, who had all these building projects, who was so-called great. But greatness is associated with one's intellect and ingenuity and strength and athletic prowess and popularity and beauty, and on and on it goes. But John's greatness here is described as what? As turning many sons back to the Lord. And the fact that this is future tense, that he will do this, has a couple of implications. One is that it will happen, but two is that they will have to be turned back. Why? Because they've turned away. That word there, turn, epistrypho, it denotes repentance. But it's not just a turning away from sin, it's a turning away from sin and a turning to God. That is what genuine repentance is. And this, listen, is why God gave the prophets to his people, so that they would be turned away from their sin and turned to God. Let me just show you this. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 44. Just one example. There's lots of examples we can give, but I love this one in Jeremiah's God gives clear instructions for why he sends his prophet. There in chapter 44, in verse 1, we read this. The word that came to Jeremiah for all the Jews living in the land of Egypt. And then verse 2, it says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, You yourselves have seen all the evil that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a waste place and no one lives in them. Why? Because of their evil, which they did, so as to provoke me to anger by continuing to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they had not known, neither they, you, nor your fathers. And then look at verse 4. Yet I sent you all my slaves, the prophets, rising up early and sending, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their evil so as not to burn incense to other gods. And the rest of the chapter just continues to outline the consequences, the dire consequences of ignoring God's word and ignoring God's prophets. And this is a repeated pattern all throughout the Old Testament that some will listen to the prophets. And when you listen to God and God's word, you experience what? Blessing. But if you don't listen to God, and you reject his word, and you ignore him, and you go your own way, then the consequences, you will experience judgment. But this is the job of a prophet, to boldly declare God's message, to turn from evil, to turn from sin, to turn from idolatry, 
And that's exactly what John did. Flip on over to the Gospel of John and look there at verse 1 in chapter 29. I love this. This summarizes John's ministry. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How do we turn from sin and turn to God? There's only one way. There's only one way. And John has it right here. You turn to Jesus. That is how we turn away from sin. We turn to Jesus. That is what true repentance is. It's not just turning away from the world. It's not just turning away from sin. Repentance is not merely moral reform. It's not merely moral correction. It is a complete heart redirection. It is an about face, a turning to God. D.A. Carson in his commentary in Matthew, he says this, Repentance is not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which result in spiritual fruit. And that's why at our church, we just want to preach the word. We want to be faithful to exposit the word Because when the word is faithfully preached, we believe that's when transformation takes place. We see this even in the church in Thessalonica. I love Paul's description of the believers there when he says this in chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, For they themselves report about us what kind of entrance we had with you. And then Paul says this, How you turn from God, or turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, Christian, do you realize that God has called you to have a prophetic ministry? I'm not not saying that God is giving you a new revelation or a new word. I'm not even saying that you got to come up and preach here from a pulpit. But what I am saying is God has called each of you as his children to bear witness of the good news to tell people that the only hope for salvation is found in Jesus Christ. My question to you, brothers and sisters, is that what your words point to? Is that what your walk points to? Are people in your sphere of influence learning about Jesus from your life? And are they turning to God because what they observe in your own life? Listen, we want our lips, we want our life to encourage people to move toward Jesus, not further away from Jesus. Just this last week, Jess and I, we got an encouraging text message from one of the former DLI students. And I asked her if I could just share this since it came in this week. And she said, it would be my pleasure for you to share. So I just want to, I just want to read this to you. Because it was a reminder that sometimes we think, man, am I being effective? And then times where you think you're being effective, maybe you're not. And so I love getting messages like this because I didn't even think twice. But this is what it says. Hey, Dom and Jess, I recently have made huge changes in my life 
that were long needed, and I'm very blessed to have brought onto this path. I remember having a conversation with you over a year ago, and I asked you about homosexuality. At the time, I was not able to shake what you said away from my mind, and I struggled up until recently. I've made a commitment to be honest and open about my struggles with it, but not to pursue that lifestyle anymore. This has brought me closer to Jesus. And I want to tell you both because I believe it was partly due to your diligence and faith that helped me along the way to salvation and getting right with the Lord. Thank you kindly for not judging me and for accepting me into your community, which eventually helped me to heal. Now listen, I'm not sharing that with you because I want to pat myself on the back. I don't even know what she's talking about. I don't know what the conversation was. But what I do know is that she was here and she was under the word of God for whatever time, whatever season that was. And it just reminded me that the word of God has that kind of impact. But this is exactly what turning away from sin means. When a person gets saved, that person's life actually changes. Our sanctification, we know this is a process. It's not like all of a sudden we're just skipping along, obeying every single command. It is a process. But if we're truly converted, the direction of our life will change. The affections in our life will change. The truth is, church, that you cannot turn to the Lord without turning away from sin. It is impossible to face two different directions at the same time. And so John, his preaching ministry, his prophetic ministry is to call people to turn away from their sin. What made John great? Yes, his purity, his power, his prophetic ministry. But also look there, John's prototype in verse 17. It says there, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's real important to point out that the text doesn't say that John the Baptist is Elijah, but it says that he goes in the spirit and power of Elijah. So what the scriptures are saying here is that his ministry was Elijah-like, but he himself is not Elijah. And you say, well, how were these two brothers similar? How, how were they alike? Well, just real quickly, they, they both had an earnest and unwavering spirit. Elijah, you remember, he fled to the wilderness. John lived in the wilderness. Both of them looked very similar, dressed similar, certainly ate similarly. We read this in 2 Kings 1.8. They said to him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle girded around his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And of John, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Very similar, but it was more than just their look because both of them denounced sin and they boldly confronted their wicked leaders. They were both despised by the leaders of the day. You remember for Elijah, he was hated by who? Ahab and Jezebel. What about John? He was hated by Herod and Herodias. Jezebel and Herodias hated the fact that those prophets were accusing them and calling them out on their sin. And so seething with anger, both women wanted those prophets dead. You also remember that they experienced doubt. And they struggled in their faith. And both of them fled for their lives. 
John, he uh, was in jail. Elijah, he was under a juniper tree, but both were reminded of the Lord's provision. But I think one of the most significant differences as you're kind of putting them side by side is that Elijah had an amazing, miraculous ministry. The fascinating thing about John the Baptist is he did not perform one single miracle. In John chapter 10 and verse 41, we read this. And many came to him and were saying, while John did no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him. That's Jesus there. You see, the most interesting thing about John, the most miraculous thing about John, is the consistency of him pointing people to the Messiah. Despite his circumstances, despite the hatred, John continued to preach repentance and point people to Jesus. And just what a great reminder. If you're young, there's so many people to look up to. There's so many role models to, modern your, uh, to model your life after. I would just encourage you, I would implore you to look at these two guys, their boldness and their courage and their truth speaking and their love for the Lord. These are the kind of role models that we want to idolize and follow after. So John's greatness as the forerunner is seen in his own personal purity. It's seen in the spirit of God that empowers his ministry. It's seen in his prophetic preaching ministry, which led others to repentance. All of this was reminiscent of Elijah the prophet's ministry. But now look there at verse 17, because John's preaching will not only provide opportunities for repentance, but the consequence of that is reconciliation. It says to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. And I'm calling this John's priestly ministry, the ability to help others be reconciled. Now, no doubt, as a priest, Zechariah would have been familiar with the Old Testament scripture that's quoted here. I don't think Zechariah would have missed the fact that Gabriel was quoting the prophet Malachi. Now notice what the forerunner does. And I think, again, this is what makes him so great. He will prepare people to turn to the Lord in repentance, but also to turn to one another in reconciliation. Someone tell me, what are the greatest two commandments? What are the two great commandments? Love, love the Lord your God, right? All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. At this point in Israel's history, they have so veered from those two great commandments. They're not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're not loving their neighbor as their self. And that's exactly what happens when God's word goes silent. That's exactly happens when we don't obey God's commands. We turn away from God in self-willed disobedience and we selfishly disregard love for others. But when God communicates his word through the messengers, that whole process is reversed. And it's not just about individual repentance, but what repentance actually does for us as a community, for us specifically as a family. Oftentimes, the fruit of repentance takes place first in our homes, our relationships with our spouses 
and our children and our parents begins to change because the love for God and obedience to his word brings about blessing in those relationships. You know this. Sin is a great poison, and it kills relationships. It kills relationships. It alienates. It divides. It creates discord and disorder, and it does that in the home. And I know that because I've experienced it, and I know that you've experienced it as well. And for some reason or another, during the holidays, it just seems to escalate, doesn't it? But listen, parents and children should be united. They should be bound together in love and affection and devotion. But the problem is sin, because it wrecks relationships, and it ruins harmony in the home. But one of the promised results of John's ministry both prophetically and priestly, is that this call to repentance will in turn restore the most important relationships. The commentator, Alan Barn, Albert Barnes, said this about this verse. He said, By directing them all to one master, the Messiah, he, that is John, would divert their attention from the causes of their differences and bring them to union. He would restore peace to their families and reconcile those parents and children who had chosen different sects and who had suffered their attachment to sect to interrupt the harmony of their households. The effect of true religion on a family will always be to produce harmony. It attaches all the family to one great master and by attachment to him, all minor causes of difference are forgotten. That is just an excellent quote. And the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson wisely noted this. He said, one of the first results of conversion is the revival of love in the home. Listen, John was so pro-home and so pro-family that he actually got his head chopped off for it. Do you remember that he confronts Herod and Herodias? They're paying fast and loose with their wedding vows. And he says, it's unlawful for you to be doing this, right? There's a ripple effect that happens with infidelity. And so he confronts their sin. And because they don't like that, ultimately, John is thrown in prison and his head is chopped off. Well, listen, not only would John help turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, But he would also, the text says, turn the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. When people turn from sin to righteousness, listen, they think differently. They feel differently. Sin darkens the mind, but righteousness renews and restores it. So you're familiar with Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I exert you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. I love this. The attitude of the righteous, it is moral Wisdom. Wisdom. Oftentimes in our home, 
we say this and we even confess this, hey, sin just makes me stupid. I'm sorry, I got to apologize to my wife and to my kids. Sin makes me think and speak and do stupid things. But the way that we counteract that is the word of God that gives wisdom. When we fill our minds with the word, disobedience becomes less and less. You see, the attitude of the righteous is the wisdom to do what is right, and it only comes from a right relationship with God. And that leads us to our last point. Because John's ministry, yes, it is pure, it is powerful, it's prophetic. There's a prototype he's following in line with. It is a priestly ministry. All of that made him great. But finally here, it's John's preparation. And we see that at the end of verse 17. The last thing the angel Gabriel said about John was that he would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And by prepared, that just simply means to be adjusted, to be disposed, to be placed in the right moral state. Listen, it takes preparation to meet with the Lord. Those who heeded John's message were ready to meet Jesus properly. And when Christ came on the scene, all those who followed John and said, do we keep following you? And John said, no, follow him. And they followed Jesus. But then there were many who didn't listen to John. There were many that disregarded his word, and they didn't receive Jesus properly. And Jesus himself was not received, and they despised him and crucified him. But let me just end on this note. I think oftentimes we are all about insurance. We want home insurance and car insurance. I remember going to Best Buy and buying a mouse for my Mac, and they said, do you want insurance on that? And my thought was, I mean, if it breaks, I'll just buy another one. I think sometimes we think about that with our life. But we don't get a second chance at this. And if there's anything that we need to be prepared for, it is being prepared to meet the Lord face to face. Each and every one of us, if the Lord should tarry, we will all die. That is a certainty. And each and every one of us will come face to face with the God of the universe. And the very worst thing that can happen is for you not to be prepared. And when you hear that, don't think, oh, I got to go do, I got to go do, I got to go, I got to be better, I got to feed, I got to do this. What you need to do is point to Jesus. If Jesus is yours by faith, then when you get face to face with God, you're not going to say, hey, Lord, look what I did. This is how I'm getting in. You're going to say, all him. It's all him. His righteousness, his perfection, his sacrifice, his holiness, given to me by faith that I didn't even deserve. That is the only way that any of us will stand before a holy God. And that is God's gift to us, proclaimed by John the Baptist. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we desire this, Lord. We desire greatness, not as the world sees it, not in the world's eyes, but in yours eye, your eyes. Father, we are guilty of desiring things that are not in line with your word. But Father, what a relief, what a comfort. We don't have to strive to become some sort of known philosopher or influencer or athlete or artist or an author. But God, to be great in your eyes is to listen to you, to obey you, 
Lord, your desire for us, just like for John, was our own personal purity. You want us to be free from the love of the world. You want us to be filled with your spirit, Lord. You want us to preach prophetically the gospel of truth, first to ourselves and then to others. Lord, this is the way we know that people are changed, the word of God working in the people of God to bring about glory to God. Father, we want to be that model, that agent of reconciliation as we help people prepare to meet you one day. So, Father, would you please help us? Would you continue to encourage us this Christmas season with high thoughts about Christ? Help us to live sanctified and holy lives, rejecting sin and clinging to the cross, the only hope for our future salvation when all things will be actualized and we will see you face to face with no more fear of sin, death, separation, or any type of discord. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.